Hi, everyone. It's Joe with Promo Kitchen, and I'm with Mark Graham of Promo Kitchen and Common Skew. And today we have two nurses who are on Long Island and a really great opportunity to have a discussion with them about what's going on with COVID. So a big thank you to Jessica, who's at Southside Hospital on Long Island in Long Island, New York. She's been a nurse for about 12 years. We're also joined by Joanna, who has been a nurse for about 10 years, and she's also at a hospital on Long Island. Wow, I'm just so grateful to have both of you here. So before we even get started, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Our pleasure. Happy to be here. Great. We can jump right into it. So ladies, tell us about what the last few weeks have been like for you. What's changed the most at work? Jessica, we can start with you on this. It's a completely different setting. Prior to the COVID crisis, I worked on a generally oncology and some medical surgical patients on my unit. And now my unit is none of those patients. We're a fully COVID unit. We are locked down. You receive hospital-issued scrubs when you arrive to work. You're dressed in basically a hazmat suit for your entire shift. Every single patient does have COVID-19. Our hospital usually had about like 20 intubated patients. And now as of last night, we had like 113 intubated patients in our hospital, all with COVID-19. Wow. Scary numbers. How about you, Joanna? So I've always worked in cardiac, but the most recent unit I've been on is an outpatient cardiac unit where we do normally cardiac catheterizations, pacemakers, pre and post. And so I went basically from working evenings, 1 p.m. to 11.30, to pretty much being switched to nights. I haven't worked nights in seven years and, you know, definitely taking a toll on me mentally and physically. Hence, I couldn't do this until so late today. I've just been on a night schedule. But our unit now, since we're not doing outpatient procedures, is basically now a med surge unit. So all the medicine patients that were up on the floor are downstairs in our unit because they needed to convert that unit into a COVID unit. Now, it's not to say when I go into work on nights now where I'm definitely going to be taking care of that patient population, I could be floated to a COVID floor. I could be floated to any other unit. So for me, mentally, it's very taxing. Nursing alone, even before this all started, you never know what your shift's going to be like. You don't. And so now it's a complete upheaval. It's, there's that you know stress and anxiety that goes along with where am I going to be placed? What is my night going to be like? Things such as that. I'm not sure how many intubated patients we have as well. I wish I knew like Jessica does, but it's up there. It's up there. Have the two of you ever seen anything like this before? And the reason I ask this question is I'm trying to think whether there's anything in your 10 and 12 years experience respectively that has looked remotely similar to this in terms of you showing up to work with a flood of patients, uncertainty as to what the next shift is going to look like, or is this completely unprecedented and there's nothing in your past that really prepared you adequately for this? We'll start with you, Jessica. It's completely unprecedented to me. I have never seen anything like this. These patients are so sick. Their decline is so sudden and rapid. They can be sitting in our ER talking to us one minute, and then in the next hour, they're being intubated. We've seen a wide range of ages. I can't compare anything to it. I mean, in the past, we've had some bad flu seasons, but nothing comparable to this. This is on a whole new level. Yeah, I'd have to agree with Jessica on that. This is unprecedented. 
and you know, it definitely is when you have seen nurses who have been in my institution 20, 25 plus years yeah. saying we've never seen this. And so when a senior nurse is saying that, it's eye-opening. Yeah, I was going to ask because nurses who have been around for 20, 25 years would have experienced 9-11, which I'm not trying to draw a parallel there, but the, something that just completely took the city by surprise and then all of a sudden would have overwhelmed the medical institutions with all of these dying patients. <laughs> for them to say that this is in a different league is really quite stunning. If I could actually interject, it's interesting that you brought up 9-11. I was still in high school at the time. I didn't graduate high school until 2003 from Lindenhurst High. And I had heard stories from the nurses that I work with saying that actually they did pretty much a mass exodus of patients because they were preparing at my institution to take patients. They were hoping for survivors. We all were. They were planning basically to get patients from ferries. Mm to bring them out east. Yeah. And when that didn't happen, they said it was upsetting. That's pretty much the only thing they had prepared for, not an influx of patients per se. They were getting rid of or safely discharging the patients that didn't necessarily need to be there because they were hoping for survival. So it's interesting you brought that up. Wow. Everything you guys are both saying is like watching the news right now. Uh -huh. Real life. Let's talk about living at home for the moment. So I know you both have different family situations, children, no children. What's it like coming home? How do you reintroduce yourself into the house after your shifts? What's your schedule like with your spouse or your partner or your children or your husbands? My husband is a family nurse practitioner, but he works in a critical care setting in a different hospital than I do. We both work nights and we kind of alternate our nights and then our mom helps us out. So we are both highly exposed to the COVID population right now. My husband is intubating these patients every night, really. He wears his own uniform to work and wears a hazmat suit over it, which he decontaminates at work. And then he comes home and does like a second decontamination in our garage. My hospital is providing all the employees with hospital-issued uniform as soon as you arrive. So you arrive in clean clothing, you change into a hospital-issued uniform, and then you go to your unit where you put your hazmat gear on top of that. So I do a full decontamination at work, and I return my hospital-issued uniform before even leaving. And then I come home. And same as my husband, I strip in the garage and I leave all shoes in the garage and then we take showers immediately and we hope for the best. But we do have three small children in the house. We're both so heavily exposed. So we're always worried that we're going to bring something home between the two of us. I can imagine. What about you, Joanna? I told my husband, I said, if this is a time not to have kids, this is it. So we don't have children, but he does work in the city. He's not in the medical field. however. The city has such a high incidence of it. So he's pretty much just exposed going through the subways, the streets. He's an elevator mechanic. And so he's on a job right now. And so believe it or not, that's considered essential because the building needs that elevator mod finished so it can be up and running. Guess we're lucky he's still working. What I do is same thing as Jessica was saying. I am able to wear my normal scrubs, what I would to work. I am able to get hospital issued scrubs, change into them do my normal shift, whatever the normal PPE is required for whatever unit I'm on. And so what I do when I go to work is I have a pair of slides, like a little Adidas slides, if you will. And so when I get to my car in the parking garage, I will take my sneakers off. I put them in a clear bag, like a clear plastic bag, put my slides on. Then when I get home, I go in through the garage. Same thing. I leave my slides in the garage. 
pretty much strip down in the garage, take even the scrubs that I really didn't wear on any unit, but I still take them off in the garage. I have a separate laundry basket for my clothes. Mm. It also just so happens to work out that because my husband's in the industry that he is, his work clothes are extremely greasy. And so downstairs in our basement, we have two washers. We have a nice front loader one that I use for my everyday clothes, towels, all the stuff that I don't want to mix with our work clothes. And then we bought a cheap top loader. So we actually wash our work clothes in that, wash them on hot water. And then once they're clean, I figured they're clean. And then they just go into the dryer. I have the separate laundry basket for them. So I try to keep everything separated as much as I can. It's truly a job after a job. Pretty much. Yeah. It takes a while to get settled in after I come home. Wow. (laughs) Well, I'm sure physically and mentally. Oh yeah. That's for sure. Wow. That's amazing. What a story. I'm curious to get your perspective on this. Are things as bad as we read about them in the media or are they worse? And if so, how? Why don't we start with you, Jessica? While the media is probably accurately reporting it based on numbers they receive from hospitals, it is so much worse when you're actually in the hospitals, on the front lines, looking at these patients, laying in these beds, on their stomachs, blowing so much oxygen in their face. They're fighting to breathe. They're coughing. We're doing everything we can not to intubate them because that just worsens their prognosis. It is so heartbreaking. All the hospitals on Long Island don't allow any visitors for visitor safety, but you know they want their family members in that moment, and we don't even have their family members there for them. They haven't seen families in a long time. Family members are calling me crying. I work in a Hispanic community. I have a lot of Hispanic families that don't speak English. Sometimes I'll have a child in the house call me because that's the only English-speaking person in the house. Mm-hmm. I have a child on the phone crying for a parent. It's absolutely heartbreaking, and I don't think the media could even capture the devastation of this and how horrible it is to see it firsthand. How would, from your perspective, Joanna? Basically, we're saying like, how is the media portraying it versus what we're actually seeing, right? Yeah. Okay. So me, as far as the media goes, I tend to stay away from the media because I think that they can either downplay or overplay things. And so I just try not to look at what the media says just to have some mental clarity and not to stress myself out when I'm not at work. I worked in visitor screening for a little bit before they had changed my hours. And like Jessica had said, it's so upsetting because we have people trying to walk in, trying to visit their loved ones, and I have to turn people away. There are some special circumstances in which we allow visitors. For basically adult patients, no visitors, unless there are special needs or something to that effect. But yeah, it's very hard to turn them away. I have had, again, some people from all different types of background who may not speak English and they're sending a loved one in to get information. And you have to be careful with information because of HIPAA and things of that nature. I was floated to one of our ICUs in my hospital and same thing, calling for updates all the time. It's just hard because they can't see the patient. You know, having people on comfort care, end of life care, things like that. Yeah, the media can't even begin to show what's going on. Like you said, we're in this. We're in this mess. We see things behind closed doors that the general public doesn't at all. Have there been any signs, any positive signs that you've seen on the front lines about that would suggest that we are starting to near a downward trend in terms of sick patients that are coming in? Or is that just a ridiculous question to even ask because 
you can't even see two inches in front of your face right now? We have kind of been maintaining, I would say in the last week or so, we've been like steadily around that 120 number as far as our intubated patients go. So we're extubating some or they're passing away and kind of replacing them, but we're not increasing. In the beginning, we were like doubling our numbers daily. We went from three patients to 15 patients. And then, you know, in a week, it was like 100 patients. It was just rapidly increasing. We've kind of been staying the same. We've had a lot of successful discharges of patients. I believe our numbers are like in the 200s for discharge patients, maybe higher. But it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel right now. We do still have so many sick patients. We have pop-up ICUs all over our hospital. We have nurses in ICUs that aren't even trained as critical care nurses. I've been down in the ER for many days, and that is not my background. Yeah. So it's hard for us to see that it's going to plateau. And then there's some talk in the hospitals that I know a lot of hospitals have erected tents to make temporary hospital space. And they're planning there may be a second wave of infection and that we're going to need those extra spaces. So I don't even want to be optimistic that we're kind of going to down curve soon because they are saying there could be a second wave. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. One of my coworkers had said to me, because I always try to see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you're just trying to get through your shift. So like you said, it's hard to see two feet in front of you because at this point, it's like survival mode. Like Jessica said, you're going into units you have no training for. It's pretty much just, you got to try and get by. You know, want everybody pink and breathing and clean. So it is hard to see. But I think from what I've heard from just talking to various doctors that I work with, that it has been steady. They haven't really seen much more of an influx or more admitted patients with COVID. It's pretty much either who's getting, you know, extubated, getting off the ventilator and going home, or like she said, passing away, unfortunately. So now I have this motto, prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. Hmm. That's kind of what I'm trying to go by right now, honestly, just one shift at a time. And yeah. And a normal shift before COVID, I imagine it's sort of the same mentality now, one shift at a time. For me personally, I never did well on nights. I always constantly had headaches, stomach issues. I was only on nights for two years, and I don't even know how I lasted two years on nights. So it's been seven years for me. Before this, I was 1 p.m. to 11.30. I could function. I could do better with that, with the stress. So now you know, I have the stress of adjusting my schedule, the stress of what's going on at work just being tossed all around and kind of just have to go with it. Mm-hmm. You know, you just got to kind of roll with it, roll with the punches per se. So I think if I was on my normal shift, I'd be able to better handle it. So now it's two different types of stresses I'm trying to handle. Yeah. And this is something we were talking about offline before recording. We're talking about people with no symptoms that are presenting with COVID and maybe not being tested. Do you guys hear things like this on the news or through other doctors that get overly fearful of what's going on in that whole area because that's a whole nother can of worms there. I know I have a friend that was tested just because she had a baby and she has it and she had no symptoms at all. What do you think about that for yourselves, for others, for friends, for loved ones? I think that based on other infectious diseases that we know about already, they always say, oh, you know, if you swab the nose of a nurse, they probably have it in their nose. They're probably colonized to it. I don't know if this would be that different. I'm sure there's people that are walking around with it that are not symptomatic. And even those that are going to become symptomatic, they don't know how long that incubation period is. You hear 48 hours. It's just such a new illness that I don't really think we know for sure how long you could be contagious before even being symptomatic. 
And, you know, people are out shopping. They're out in the public. I know people have definitely taken the social distancing seriously, but people still have to go shopping. They're still in stores. They're still touching things. They say we know how long it lives on surfaces, but do we? Yeah. Definitely a fear that you're going to get it. It seems to be everywhere, especially when you're in the hospital surrounded by so many different people who came in. They don't know where they got it from. Are you both going to the grocery store? Yeah. Yes. I would like to think I'm smart about it. I go either A, when they first open up or B, when it's getting towards like an hour right before closing. I do find that there's less people in the store towards closing time. I keep my distance. I'm very cautious about not putting my hands to my face. If I have an itch, I let that itch itch. Like I do not scratch it. I wait until I get home to wash my hands. I agree. You have to be hyper vigilant with not touching your face. That makes a huge difference. No hands to the face. And I don't know about you, Jessica, but it bothers me when I see lay people who are not medically trained who are wearing gloves and cross-contaminating. I see it and I'm like, oh, it bugs me so bad. It's so disgusting. They're touching things. They're gloves and they're not washing their hands because they're like, I'm wearing gloves. It defeats the purpose. I'm curious to get your opinion on something that has been a big topic in the promotional products industry. And this is the industry that Joe and I are part of. Mm There has been a ton of demand over the last couple of weeks for PPEs, specifically hand sanitizers, masks, whether they're KN95s or even masks that are not to medical grade either. And the promotional industry is supplying hospitals or customers that are donating product to hospitals. Is there something from your perspective that we should know about as to whether this is helpful for our industry to be doing this? Are you on the receiving end of some of these products and you may look at them and say, hey, these are fantastic or Ooh, who provided this? Even if from well-intentioned people, given that you're on the front lines and you're actually using these various products, is there something that you'd want our industry to know? We don't necessarily know where our products come from. I can tell you, to me, obviously, they've come from all different places because every night I come in, there's different colored gowns, there's different masks, whatever we're getting, they're giving to us. My hospital does not have a shortage of PPE. We have everything that we need. We're conservative with it. We don't want it to run out, but we do have what we need. The masks were the biggest thing. Prior to COVID, I would have patients on my unit with active tuberculosis, and I would maybe wear like 10 of those masks in the ship, those N95. So I'd just throw them in the garbage like a dime a dozen. Even though it says in the box by the manufacturer that mask is good for like a month or something. I'd throw it out. They were up plenty. Now we're saving our masks for like a week, as long as we can, one mask. I don't know where they come from. It's my understanding that Northwell has their own source of them. And we've been told they have plenty of masks and we don't have to worry. If we need a new mask, just let them know. They'll give it to us. We don't have a shortage in the Northwell system. Yeah, same for us. I don't know where my institution gets it either. I do know that we have 3M for the N95s. But again, I have not run into any issues with PPE. However, they are smart with the way they are distributing them. So before we used to be able to have an entire box, I forget how many come in a box on our unit at any given time, because like Jessica said, sometimes you'd have that one random patient who maybe had a history of latent tuberculosis. So still with that, you have to wear your N95 due to it being, you know, airborne. But I have not run into that issue. So now we have to call our nursing office if we need a new mask and they will distribute it. So they are being smart about their resources. 
we also, to protect our N95s, are putting on surgical masks over it, protect the integrity of them. Right. It's truly a war zone. Yeah. From your vantage point as professionals in the medical system, what's the most misunderstood thing about COVID-19? Well, I think everyone thinks that if they get it, they're going to end up in a hospital and maybe an ICU setting and death is coming for them, which we know is really not the case. It's actually a small portion of the population that is so ill with it that needs to be hospitalized. The patient population that is hospitalized is very, very sick. And when they come to the hospital, I think that they believe that we have some kind of miracle treatment and we're going to make it right for them. And the truth is that it's such a new and emerging illness. Even in the last month, how we're managing them has changed and we're just trying different things. We don't really have a way to cure them. We just treat them symptomatically, really. Just blasting them with oxygen, we're laying them on their stomachs, we bang on their backs to try to loosen some of the secretions in their lungs, and we do whatever we can to keep them from getting intubated. We're using different antiviral drugs, but I mean, again, it's all new. We don't really have a clear way to treat it. I think people think that when they come to the hospital, my patients for sure are looking at me like with desperate eyes, like, please help me. Please make me feel better. I came to the hospital today to feel better. And sometimes when they're there, they just seem to be feeling worse because there's nothing we can do for them. Yeah. I agree with what Jessica said. You know, it's true. Just because you're diagnosed with it does not mean, you know, you're going to be on death's door. There's so many people, like you said, it's like such a new and emerging illness that some people may be just like, oh, you know, I did notice I kind of had like a dry cough. And then it turns out they ended up having COVID. Just that dry cough was their only symptoms. Some people don't get a fever. Some people do. Some people have sinus symptoms. Some people have GI issues. I know a few people who had COVID or diagnosed with it. They don't have any breathing issues at all. It's all GI, vomiting, diarrhea, along with a fever. It's too new, honestly. That's also where I'd like to go back to where the media portrays. They're not, I don't think, focusing on all the people that are okay after they've had it. You know, I feel like we kind of need a little bit of positivity in this time. And I think the media doesn't always focus necessarily on the positive. They kind of, you know, the negative a little bit. What do you see happening in each of your hospitals over the next couple of weeks? Jessica, how about we start with you? We are hoping that we take more patients off the vent. We extubate them and they do well and they're discharged. And we slowly start to decline our numbers of critical level ICU patients. That's my first hope. We hope that we go back to what would be a normal amount of patients that are dying. Right now, we actually have like a mobile morgue behind the hospital to accommodate all the dead bodies. It's, it's really, it's horrible. And funeral homes are hesitant to come and pick them up because they are different ways of handling them. I mean, I really like to see my hospital go back to the way it was. I don't know how long it will be until we could stop wearing masks because even if you're not on a COVID floor, the mask is mandatory in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping eventually over time, we'll go back to the way we were. I think it's going to take at least two months though. Yeah. It's hard to put a time limit on it too. I'm hopeful for like even a month, but that's probably unrealistic. But it's so funny because it's so true with the saying, you never really knew what you had until you lost it. And I just can't wait to be back with my work fam, as I call them, my work family. And I really, truly miss them so much. And I can't wait to go back to the way things were because I really didn't realize how good I had it until this happened. And we work so well as a team, my coworkers and I, I miss the patient population I was taking care of before this. I think after this, I'm definitely going to have more of an appreciation for my profession. 
and what I do for my patients prior to this. Like, you know, you know, and you know, as well as I know, Jess, sometimes we have our hard days and we would complain or whatever. And now I think back, I'm like, I complained about that. That's silly now. I can't believe we complained when we had like seven patients and exactly was going bad. Now I have nine patients and four of them are going bad and I can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yep. As someone that's not in the medical profession, I truly know I could never, ever handle it. I'm listening to you and my like jaws on the floor because you know what you're saying, how you appreciated everything you had. You can't imagine the level of appreciation that people have for you and always have had for you. I'm not surprised that you're both saying it. It's just so beautiful and eye-opening to hear you both give such a deep appreciation to medicine. Clearly, you're both nurses for a reason because for you to be so grateful for that is just so telling of what kind of nurses you are. Yeah. Thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Never would have chosen a different profession. That's amazing. I really don't think I could do it. Some days, you know, before this, you're like, wow, why did I pick this? But I'd have to say, I always say it's like an 80%, you know, 20%, like 80% love, 20%. It's just those, but there's more good days that outweigh the bad for sure. And so you keep coming back and you keep coming back for a reason. You keep going into your next shift for a reason. No matter how many times you might just have that one little bad day and say, why did I do this? Or you still keep coming back. Yeah. Absolutely. And because of the nature of the difficult job we do, I think a lot of us have the same experience that our work family is a family to us. We have a deep camaraderie with our coworkers. I love my work family like dearly. They are family to me. We really are a family. So thank God. Yeah. The industry that you're talking to now, the promotional industry, I have to say we have a very similar community and especially the people that are listening to this podcast. It's a really good community. I know a couple of weeks ago, I did a podcast with Mark with a doctor in Illinois, and I was receiving texts saying, thank you for doing that. Loved it. Loved hearing about it. So I know we're really grateful for the people that we work for and the people that we work with. So it's nice to hear you guys aligning with that. Shifting gears for a second on this all. In the last few weeks, what's really been the most eye-opening on this for you? Perhaps about the disease itself, perhaps about yourself, what's been really eye-opening? I've taken good health in my life for granted because obviously as a nurse, I've seen very sick people over time and women my own age die, especially in the oncology unit. But I am so grateful to be a healthy person. I have no pre-existing comorbidities. I have no medical conditions at all. And seeing people my own age who are hospitalized right now, I am just grateful that I don't have any of those things. And if I was to get COVID, I'd be going as a healthy person and I have a very promising prognosis. It also has changed my view of the world. My children are obviously out of school and they're home now and we're spending a lot of time with them. And, you know, you're just grateful for the things you have because there's people that are never going to go back home all because they got this virus in some grocery store. It definitely changes your view of the world. Yeah, that's for sure. I would definitely agree with that. As far as like, in a non-medical way that the virus has changed. I think I took for granted the ways I used to have stress relief from my job just prior to this happening. You know, one of the big ways I would go get massages. I can't even do that now. And it's like, wow, like I got to find other ways to try and get my stress relief from this. But I'm also thankful that like Jessica said, I have my health. I have no pre-existing health conditions. So, you know, I know working nights takes a toll on immunity. 
So I'm just, I bought a stockpile of like immunity vitamins and things like that. I've been chugging emergency every single day. I make sure to have a little powdered packet in my water and drink it and try to just get enough sleep. So that's how it's changed for me, <laughs> looking for outlets on ways to stay healthier and yoga, do headspace, meditation app, things like that. Yeah. One of the things that we've been talking a lot about in our industry, Joanna and Jessica, is how our profession may emerge from this crisis stronger than ever. And I think that that's, you know, maybe the positive and yeah. optimistic among us. Look at all the things that we may have taken for granted in our industry and how this crisis has basically wiped a lot of those bad things away and is really forcing us to think about our businesses in a different light. And we often say, once this is done, that's going to make us as professionals even more successful in this business. Is that something that you think about in your profession as to, I'm sure that no one is thankful that COVID has come to your life and your hospitals, but are there some things that may be better once this is over? It will definitely change the way I think about nursing. As Joanna said, I'm so grateful for the job that I had. Not that I wasn't before COVID, but looking back on it, I really, really love the job that I had and I really loved what I did. And, you know, I'm so grateful to go back to it when it's all over. I think we are forever changed. I think that we'll always remember this crisis. And whenever we have a bad night at work going forward, we'll be like, well, it's nothing like the COVID times. And my mom became a nurse in 1972 and she was a nurse of the AIDS epidemic. And up until the point she retired, she would still like reflect with her generation of nurses, like remember the AIDS epidemic. So, you know, they would always still talk about that until they retired recently. So it, to me, it's so much more dramatic than the AIDS epidemic, really, because it's just so contagious. And yeah. I think we'll always talk about it until we retire and we're old lady nurses. We'll always remember this. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's for sure. It's definitely going to leave a permanent mark in your memory, that's for sure. You won't be old lady nurses. You'll be older, fabulous nurses. <laughs> <laughs> this will be your you had to walk uphill both ways to work story, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's for sure. But yeah, like she said, like you just have a deeper appreciation for what you did before this. My coworkers and I are closer than ever. We were already very bonded, but this has made us on a whole new level of closeness, crying together and supporting each other through this. We are closer than ever. Hmm. That's for sure. I cry on my way home from work a lot. <laughs> I do. I'll, I'll totally admit that. I cry in the car. <laughs> Got to hold it together at work. But yeah, we have a group text. We all text and check in because yeah. some of the nurses are in different units and we're like, Hey, how are you holding up? You know, and just things like that. I think how it might change or what we could learn from this after the things that I used to stress about before, I really had no reason to be stressed. Like if anything, I think that might help a little bit of maybe the ping of anxiety that you feel in the pit of your stomach before you begin a shift, because you don't know what's going to happen on any given day or you know, who could code on you or anything like that, even prior to COVID. And so I think that out of this, for me personally, I'm going to say, I really have nothing to worry about at all. I can handle this now. This is nothing compared to COVID. Yeah, you're right. I, I think what I'm hearing you say is that it gives you a whole different perspective on okay. things. And I think as we mature in our respective industries and professions, that's probably a good thing, right? Oh, yeah. 
All right. Well, I've got one last question, and then I'll turn it over to Joe to give the two of you the last words. If you were to communicate a message to the public, one message to the public, what would it be? Be grateful for your health. Your body and your health is a gift. A lot of it is up to you how you treat it. And a lot of health conditions in this country are preventable completely. Give your body all you can give it because when you have an unhealthy body, you can never get it back and it's devastating. Yeah. I think I want to say also too that you're right, your body's a temple. It's the greatest instrument you'll ever own. You got to treat it like that, honestly. And I don't know if this is a wake up call for a lot of people that maybe I should go to the doctor on a regular basis. And while a lot of them can't be cured, a lot of conditions are manageable with the proper treatment and medication. I think just go to your doctor regularly, take care of your body, get enough sleep, drink plenty of water, and just also take things for yourself, for your mental health too, especially during this time, whether it's reading a book or doing yoga, just to de-stress and get back in touch with yourself. Great tips. And so as we wrap this up, and we cannot thank you enough for this, but as we wrap this up, is there anything you want to say to the public that we haven't covered? Any final thoughts from you? You know, what you're hearing in the media is generally, for the most part, accurate. But for those nurses that are actually on the front lines with their loved ones, if there's someone that has a loved one in the hospital, know that we are there with them. We're at their bedside. We're strangers to them, and we're wearing a hazmat suit. They can't even see our face. but the nurses are doing everything you can do to provide comfort to your family member and make sure that they don't suffer and then they're not in pain. For those patients that have passed away, they never pass away alone. We stay with them. We do everything that we can do. You know, they're strangers to us. So, I mean, maybe somebody can take some comfort for that. that and we're here for them, even though they're strangers. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and when somebody does pass away, we cry for them and we cry for the family members too. We definitely do. Yeah, very heavy note, but that's the reality we live in. So thank you both. I know Mark and I are really excited about having you on and we appreciate it. And I know our community does as well. So thank you both for everything you're doing. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.